What's up, Crip Nation? Pizza Mind here with my trusted compadre, as always, Bryce Paul. Shalom. Have, yes. And we have a very special episode of Crypto 101 today. Today, we are doing a special founder series episode. And we have on with us Will Martino and Stuart Popejoy, the co founders of Cadena. Now, what makes this really interesting is we've been talking a lot about smart money lately. These guys work for some of the smart, smartest money in the world, JP Morgan, but they left to come what? join this industry. <laughs> so we smart, we guy, learn- smart guys leaving a failing industry with failing companies. <laughs> like sounds makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they saw the writing on the wall. We want to know a little bit about what that writing on the wall was and then we want to know what they're going to be scripting next. So, Will, Stuart, welcome to Crypto 101. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks, And we're, we're just cheeky uh, with, with JP Morgan. We mean them no disrespect. I will say one funny story that happened to me this past weekend where I went to JP or I went to Chase Bank to open up a new checking account. And uh, I go in there, you know, there's about 10 employees there, you know, and they said nobody, you know, like we're not, you can't open up a bank account today because nobody here is able to open up a bank account for you. I'm like, what do you mean? They're just like, oh, well, these are all tellers and these are our associate bankers. We only have like a manager in every uh, every couple hours or something. So I, I thought that was very odd that like you, you would, you'd think that you would at all times have somebody at the bank who could open up new accounts because that's how they make money, right? They want my $100 so they could loan that out. Uh, and, and make some good money, but it was just very odd, very, very mismanaged. And yeah, like Pizza Mind said, we've got to know, fault, guys. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we definitely do want to know, like, before we even get into you guys personally or Cadena exactly, like, like Pizza Mind said, the writing on the wall, like, paint us a, a picture of why you guys, you know, left where you were. Sure. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll, this is Stuart. I'll, I'll take that because uh, I was at JP Morgan longer than Will was. And originally I was uh, building algori- uh, algorithmic trading systems for them in equities and equities derivatives. And so these are, you know, huge trading systems that um, handle, you know, 600 million shares a day of volume. And, uh, you know, and if something goes wrong in those systems, you know, it's not uncommon for us to, even if it's not our fault at, at JP Morgan, it wouldn't be uncommon that even if it wasn't their fault, if there was some kind of error with the trade, we'd just take care of clients to the tune of like $500,000. Um, you know, Whoa. I'm just saying the level of service is, it, it was a service desk and like the level of service is quite high. So I left that to form the blockchain group. And uh, and started working with banking at that point because the trading was under the uh, J.P. Morgan uh, Investment Bank uh, corporate. And once I got to the bank, there was a very different culture. Um, you know, the technology was much older. Things moved a lot slower. And, and banking was really the focus of the work on blockchain. There was no real interest from trading just because the... the Frankly, the volumes aren't there for a bank of JP Morgan size, uh, investment bank of JP Morgan size to even be really looking at crypto. So that was interesting already because I was dealing with a, you know, very much a different culture as it was. And I think that has a lot to do with the kinds of culture things that made us, that would eventually make us want to break out and, uh, you know, inform Cadena because. Uh, while when I was working in trading, you know, there'd be a lot of like interaction with small vendors, people providing market data, all this kind of stuff. And banking, it's all about dealing with these vendors you've dealt with for a million years. And so generally slow moving, kind of conservative, and it was hard to get them to kind of put the JP Morgan name behind blockchain efforts. Uh, we open sourced a, our, the first version of our private blockchain there. And couldn't even get them to do a press release about it because you know they didn't want to risk associating the J.P. Morgan brand with some unproven technology, which is their choice. But um, what, after silly. we left, yeah, go, go ahead. I was just saying that's really silly. It is, but it's just. Cons- I mean, they didn't really know what they were getting into. They were more interested in the strategic investment side of things. Frankly, they wanted to make make sure that like interbank blockchain projects they would be a part of. 
so that they wouldn't be left out. And, you know, and, and they wanted a feather in their cap surrounding like, and the, the, I do think that by us leaving, we sent the message that if you want your team to, you know, if you want to retain a team that's also, you know, because the whole, it's the usual thing where you want to retain quality technologists to evaluate tech. And the way you keep quality technologists is you keep them working on interesting things. Um, we might be, we could probably take some of the credit for why they did get their act together with Quorum because that was part of the same group that we were in and they stayed and we left and they got, they were able to, you know, in, a, in about a year's time, they were able to get all the things together that we couldn't get JP to do, like make a JP Morgan GitHub, put out press releases and, and let the JP Morgan brand be more directly associated with it. But that's at our quiet. time, Yeah. As soon as you break up, that's when they finally stop drinking, clean up, sober up, get their act together. <laughs> exactly. So how did you guys first meet? Like you're at JP Morgan, you're working at the blockchain center. You know, Will walks up to Stuart one day and says, hey, I'm the new guy here. Or what's the story? So uh, Stu hired me was it five years ago, six ah. years ago at this point. What was um, the most I challenging interview question he asked you? <laughs> um... The, the the interview there was um, was not very difficult, to be very honest. I think the, the most challenging technical question that I got was not from Stu. Um, Stu and I had a different conversation where we just nerded out about Haskell, and it was clear that we were of the same mind. Um, I had a friend uh, who's still there, Carter Schronwald, who I knew in college, and he was he's on like, the Haskell committee. He's been in Haskell, which is his research language that I was interested in getting a job in. And I was coming out of the SEC where I was just tired of being in the government because the government is so bureaucratic. So, um, so I, you know, I, I talked to my friend Carter. Uh, Carter was the first person that Stuart hired and uh, went in for the interview. And Stuart and I got along very quickly. Um, I had code to show him and, you know, code talks. So that makes it fast. I think from the other people who were there, the hardest question that I got, and these are not people who are on our desk. These are people who are um, in different parts of this larger group. The hardest question was something about SQL. I think it was like a group buy versus a uh, sort question, which doesn't even really make that much sense. Um, it was like having versus uh, group I or something along those lines. And it was just this incredibly silly question. That was the technical quote unquote, like question that was supposed to be hard. Anyway, like we like, you know, I, yeah, I was a second hire on this group. And um, I think that the thing that you know got me the interview was that um, people were expecting me to be a certain way because Haskell engineers like like Stu and I are like one of one class of Haskell engineer, and then Carter's this other class of this very, like intellectual, like very god brain, like focused on really big picture um, things, but isn't as focused as on like producing things on like a day to day basis. Like they, we make like Haskell teams make this really good combo when you have like a few of the people who are really focused on the big picture design, and then a bunch of people who are focused on just getting stuff out the door really quickly. And I was the first person after Carter that they had met who was, you know, not Stuart ED level um, who came in and people were just like, wow, okay. Like, I think we can actually do something with this person. Also my SEC background definitely helped. So um, yeah, it was cool working there. We worked on some stuff before blockchain, before it became the blockchain group and we built JP Morgan's first blockchain and open sourced it. I just don't think JP Morgan was really, and back to what Stu said, they weren't really focused on having that group build the highest performance private blockchain four years ago. And Juno is still one of the fastest private blockchains out there. Um, I think you can do about a thousand transactions a second and scale up to something like 60 or 80 nodes, which is still lightning compared to most of the things like R3 or IBM bring to the table, even though it hasn't been worked on for four years and it's just sitting there open sourced. So they didn't really expect us to build a world-class private chain and didn't really know what to do with it. And then, as Stu mentioned, we left, and that was pretty much a wake-up call that, hey, there's something special going on in this group. Um, if you want to keep the people and really go and make a brand around JP Morgan and blockchain, you need to get more you know, open and aggressive with doing press around it, because otherwise these people are probably going to leave because they're seeing the questions that we, they know. Like We gathered all these questions that we knew needed to be answered, and we had a line of sight of how to answer them so that we could take the technology forward in the 2020s. Okay, very cool. Very cool. I love that story. Um, one, one of the other things I wanted to mention before we dove, dove in uh, on some other stuff was about uh, Stuart Haber, who is, uh, I mean, A, you guys are, he's one of your guys' advisors for the project. 
but interestingly enough, he was also one of the very few cryptographers that were cited in the Bitcoin white paper that Satoshi Nakamoto wrote. So, uh, yeah, tell us about how you guys met Stuart and, and how he's involved in the project. Sure, we met. Uh, so there's been this uh, Bitcoin NYC meetup for a long time run by a guy named Jonathan Mohan. And uh, one of the first ones I went to, um, I ended up, it was about a, it was about the, I think it was about an Ethereum attack that had just happened. And um, I know quite a bit about the Ethereum virtual machine because one of our versions of our blockchain at JP Morgan actually ran EVM smart contracts. Um, so we had built that um, and before we decided that EVM wasn't the right choice which would eventually lead to us uh, creating PACT, our smart contract language that we use in our blockchain. Um, but, uh, you know, so the converse, there was a lot of people at the meetup, but, but it, it started kind of narrowing down to a few people. And one of the, and one of the other pe person who talked was this uh, slightly older gentleman than me who, uh, you know, was saying some pretty smart things. And Jonathan introduced me afterwards and he's like, oh, this is uh, Stuart Haver. And he's cited in the Bitcoin paper. And I was like, that's cool. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, nice to meet you. Um, and that was, I, I want to say that was in um, early 2018 or late 2017. And, uh, and it was just really fun to talk to him and, and get him involved because um, he really, like, I think he's, a very practical minded person. And a lot of the stuff he did was very much uh, focused on using cryptography, not, you know, necessarily coming up with whizzy new technologies as much as like really investigating the technology, real engineering, focusing on the technologies that are there. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but Stuart Haber has been running a, has been running a blockchain or he started a company that is still running a blockchain since 1996. It's just the way they timestamp is they publish the hash in the New York Times every Sunday. So when you read the Satoshi paper, when you read the Satoshi paper, it starts off saying, well, wouldn't it be better if we could do something instead of, say, publishing a classified in the New York Times? That's not a metaphor. He's talking about Stuart Haber's business. Mm -hmm. And it is a blockchain and it is still running. It just the consensus is the New York Times. That's so um, interesting. Yeah, it was for document. Uh, it was basically la largely for legal. So it was a way to prove that a document existed. So they just hashed the document and then and then put it in a, a chain. And then every week, the root of the chain. So you could think of a week as a block. I did not know that. That's actually a really cool and very practical application. Definitely. So you two are two of the smartest guys we've ever had on the podcast. Uh, we know that from talking with Will in our previous episode where we did the deep dive on the tech behind Kadena. So I wanted to ask you guys, what's the hardest part about getting through the first year of running your own business? Because no matter how smart you are, you're going to get hit with some stuff out of nowhere that's going to leave you a little dizzy. I think um, for us, it's funny because I think a challenge was is that we – you know, business development was a challenge. We, we, we went out the gate with a fair amount of fanfare. Uh, we got press. Uh, a lot of people, you know, VCs introduced themselves to us. We got, you know, we were able to go into a lot of banks and, and present our technology. Um, but, you know, the thing is about enterprise is that the sales cycle is just incredibly long. So, you know, we'd have all these great conversations and they'd be like, yeah, we're going to bring you in. And then three months would go by before they actually brought us in. Um, our first paying client was Humana, and that actually happened pretty quickly um, where we met at a conference uh, in uh, like January, and I think we had a signed contract by April. So that was pretty, that was a very speedy thing. But um, so, you know, so once we had that going, a lot of what we were doing at that point was just kind of heads down, getting the, you know, polishing up our tech and making sure it was production ready. And, uh, and then starting to work with our first client. So I actually feel like um, the, the biggest challenges we faced were really when we went into doing, uh, starting to uh, issue SAFs for our first and our second coin sale. Because um, that's when we really ran into the uh, East Coast, West Coast divide. 
um, you know, that the way the business cultures operate and act, you know, in the East Coast, people would meet us and they'd look at our background and they'd see our tech and they'd, and they'd be like, right, you guys know what you're doing and you know how to build this stuff, which is clear from your background. We'd go to the West Coast and none of that applied. And it would, it would be all about who you know or, you know, what uh, crypto influencers thought of you. And, and, then, and it's not that they weren't receptive to listen, about, listen to the technology. It was just a far more insidery scene than I expected crypto to be. I expected crypto to be a little bit more, a little bit more open-minded. And by that time, the ICO thing had been going on quite a bit. So, so I think we learned some very interesting lessons about how this crypto world really works, at least in this country. Um, but, you know, eventually we succeeded and, and had a good raise, especially our second raise. Um, so, but our first year was pretty fun because it was just Will and I sitting at our desks, you know, re- you know working remotely and, uh, you know, working with Humana, working with some other clients and, you know, and, and seeing that the technology really did what it said. So uh, it, it's kind of like the rubber hit the road maybe a little later in that. Yeah, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. I think the first, the, like one of the biggest things we ran into early was once we started working on public chains and um, when we went out to the West Coast to do our first SAF round, like we still have to spend a lot of time talking to people about proof of work versus proof of stake. And the number of uh, people who are just uninterested in, who, like there's this line in the community ever since probably 2015 that proof of stake is the only future um, it will be, um, you know, it will be the savior of crypto. We will be able to scale it. It will be faster, better, stronger. And we're still waiting five years later for anything started to come out of the proof of stake community. And Stu and I are out there in, you know, um, 17, 2017, 2018, talking about, hey, we figured out a way to do sharding with proof of work. And it's really simple. And everyone I've talked to, including Stuart Haber, you know, he was the most cited person in the Satoshi white paper, um, you know, says like, hey, this is going to work. Like this thing actually does make sense. So we spent an inordinate amount of time. And that was just really difficult. And it still is. People hear proof of work and they say, oh, it's antiquated technology. And then we point them to our block explorer and we say, guys, we got 10 chains sharded with sharded state running in parallel. It's been running since November. And yeah, I get that you haven't heard of us. So you'd like think that it's not a, like you think that there's something weird here, but it's just that the entire community has been fed this line about proof of stake. And Lo and behold, the first sharded system to ever see production is proof of work. We've been saying the same thing for three or four years. So that was definitely like early on, that was hard. Um, and I think the other hard part was just, you know, Stuart and I are technical co-founders. So there, we didn't have the business guy on day one who came in with the Rolodex to, you know, go and build up these contracts and also to go and build the business. Um, I've stepped more into the businessy role and uh, Stu stepped more into the focus on tech, but we still like have each other's backs on everything. And we still swap around all the time. So like figuring out that and how it goes from just two guys, like in our like respective um, departments, working remotely, building out the tech, going to some conferences, you know, speaking at the first Stanford blockchain conference to uh, we got a team of 25 that is very quickly building um, the most innovative platform ever to see the light of day uh, to launch in you know, 2019, 2020 um, was, it was just a lot really fast, but it, we pulled it off and it worked. That's awesome. Uh, t- tell me about something that you guys do that's you know, really special, that is something that motivates you guys um, to just get up in the morning and you know, build these businesses. What, what's one thing if you could, could kind of boil it down to? Um, I think one of the things that motivates me the most is, uh, just our public network, um, chain love. Um, like this is just, it's just very, it's just a very cool piece of tech. Um, like that's, you know, the shorter term, the longer term is definitely what Stuart's done with PACT. Um, PACT is just this, it's like, I have, um, enough of a background in, um, distributed systems and in SQL and databases to know a standard when I see one. And PACT is going to be the standard for smart contracts. It has everything that everyone's talked about for the last five years of wanting. And then a bunch of other stuff that people don't even realize they want. Things like, you know, naming services, like you get on Ethereum or Bitcoin. You just don't need them with PACT. Because you can just have an account that has a name. 
Maybe we can have a coin or you have a contract that has a name. Um, there's a bunch of stuff in there, but it's really like packed as this huge potential to both expand the crypto market um, and to bring in to make smart contracts easier. So all of a sudden we can have programmable um, money. But you know, going circling back to Chainlink briefly, I wasn't a big believer in crypto before Ethereum. I'll be honest. When I was at the SEC, I looked at Bitcoin, saw that it could do five transactions a second, saw that it claimed to be uh, digital cash, and just kind of threw up my hands and said, "These guys don't understand how finance works. You can't be digital cash at that throughput." And I maintain that, even with Lightning and you know, these other layer two approaches, if your layer one can't scale beyond five or ten transactions a second. You can never be digital cash. You can be digital gold, which Ethereum has become and is amazing in America. But Chainweb allows us to talk about, and Dana Mainnet allows us to talk about actually scaling a layer one and having real digital cash. And that's just something you don't see very often in human history. We've changed fundamentally what it means to have cash and to have money and use it on a very rare occasion, only a few times. Today's show is brought to you by our new sponsor, Cog Network. Cog Network. Geared for gain. Cog Network is hedge fund investing evolved. By owning Cog Network tokens, you get exposure to the hedge fund's gains. The hedge fund is comprised of algorithmically traded commodity futures and investment in hard assets related to energy. The first hard asset is partial ownership of a multi-million dollar solar farm that has a crypto mining operation attached. I mean, this is really something that both traditional and crypto investors can come together and participate in. So for traditional investors, they can get exposure to cutting edge blockchain technology in a framework that they're familiar with, a hedge fund, right? And crypto investors can get exposure to an actual security that bears dividends and includes non-crypto assets. So that's super cool. And just for full disclosure, Cog Network is a fully registered and regulated entity qualified by the SEC as a Reg D as well as a Reg S and has a 506C exemption. They've been working with lawmakers since 2017 to get this idea built out in a fully compliant way. Crypt Nation, if you guys are interested in learning more about a tokenized hedge fund, go visit www.cog.network. Yeah, absolutely. So what is your guys' strategy going forward now that you've just got your token listed for the very first time on Bitrix Global? And what's what's the, the campaign now to build a community of developers around this amazing product that you've built? Well, our belief is we don't there, – there was a playbook that we were trying out for a while that was going around a lot in 2018 about like, you know, that the community is everything and you got to, you know, you got to have somebody like Vitalik on the plane, you know, 250 days out of the year showing up at every conference imaginable and every ha hackathon imaginable and, um, you know, and you got to set up in Asia, Europe, United States, Latin America – and that's just critical. That's what you got to do. And what we found was that that is a bit of, I think that was a bit of ICO uh, fluffery, you know, that what that wasn't what was really going on with various coins doing well or not doing well or, you know, going up and going down. And really what makes a community happen is basically delivering technology to the users on time that works and then putting it in their hands and then helping them use it, you know, which Ethereum did, of course, Ethereum launched, you know, quite a long time ago and they launched with, you know, more or less the system that they have now. And therefore people are able to start building with it. And that's really important. And, but we've seen the same thing where, you know, we, we launched our blockchain in November uh, without transfers, but with mining. We did the full launch in January, which then enabled all of the smart contracts. And since then, we see more and more interest. Before then, it was, the main interest people had was in mining, uh, you know, uh, and that started, you know, the mining rate started to pick up early on and that built our community. But, it, you know, that was a mining focused community um, that kind of grew our discord too. Um, and now that the, the full platform is there, and with some of the announcements we've made, like you know that we're integrating with Chainlink and some and some of, about some of our partners, people are finally starting to get the message about PAC. Because the funny thing about smart contracts is that you know 
it's it's hard to get people excited about a language. It's hard to get people excited about a an SDK. But when developers actually get their hands on it, they start getting pretty excited because, you know, one of the we we have a we have endless stories, user stories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Now about people who, you know, it'd take them two months to get productive and solidity. They get it. They get a demo done in two weeks and packed, and they've never even seen it before. And so people get excited about that kind of stuff because it's it's empowering to be able to make you know your POC or your your concept come to life on a blockchain with so little effort. And also because Pact is such a safe language, know that it's going to be a pretty safe application right out the gate. Um, you know, we had a we had a really interesting thing recently with uh, Blend, with their FinPrint company, where they migrated an entire working demo off of Ethereum onto Cadena and were able to show it to their client in three weeks. And it was a really slick demo too. So they, they put out a really nice blog article about moving about migrating from ethereum to pact so so we're really excited about that but um also we're going to scale our blockchain uh in july from 10 chains to 20 chains this has never been done before you know i mean no one started a blockchain a base layer blockchain before anyways but this is very important for us to show that it's not just that it's sharded it's scalably sharded we can keep increasing the size of the network and uh, you know, and that that's something that has interested everybody from developers to like the enterprise uh, blockchain press. They picked that up in our last announcement. So, so all in all, with with that in the listing, it's a really exciting time right now, um, just because I think people are finally starting to really have a glimpse of what we're offering. Man, that is amazing. Um, could you could you give me like an example? Maybe each of you give me one example of how like a packed smart contract can either change business. Or government, or maybe consumer habits. Sure, I got um, a few of them. I'll keep them short. Uh, I mean, you know, one thing to revisit is what Suda's talked about, which is scaling from ten to twenty chains. You know, we have a sharded network. This is a sharded state network. When you heard the press about what Ethereum two point is going to be, where it's going to have throughput, it's going to be horizontally scaled. That's what we're talking about, and we're the first people to actually get it into production. The closest competitors we have are near. And near, hopefully, we'll get through their six-stage launch this year. But charting and production is hard. Proof of stake is hard. Doing both at the same time, I don't know if that's possible. But we did it with proof of work. So when you start thinking about applications on top and using smart contracts on top of a sharded base layer, you can actually start. You don't have to worry about the problems that you get with um, something like Ethereum, where now people in Ethereum are proposing that they're going to change the gas model because the uh, now when um, people were talking about how the rent was too damn high, now the gas is too damn high in Ethereum. And people can't actually run apps. So uh, we don't have that problem. The way you solve the gas being expensive problem is you have a system that can scale to a uh, network that is larger than the throughput that your users demand. So all of a sudden, you can start thinking about instead of having layer one and two um, hybrid applications, which makes sense for really large scale or very privacy focused things, you can actually think about having large scale decentralized autonomous organizations or just entire applications running on a public network. Um, but you know, when you're also talking about things like, let's say, talk about games. Um, you know, one of the problems that uh, historically DApps have had is that for you as a user to go use a DApp, you need to um, have a crypto wallet that has cryptocurrency in it to go and start using that DApp because you need to send in the transactions to pay the fees, and it is just this critical user experience problem. Ethereum has talked about solving it for years, like they talked about pretty much everything. They've come up with every idea. They've just solved very few of them. Um, smart contracts are killer, but then after that, there's a bunch of UX things. And this gas 
problem is one of them. They talk about these things called gas stations. Well, PACT actually brings those to the table. We can have a smart contract that can actually pay for its users' gas. Um, it's technical and exactly how this works, but the effect of it is that you could go and deploy an application like a decentralized Google Forms and go and pass that around to your friends because you want to go and collect some information, but you don't want to trust Google to not give that information to you know, some advertisers some third party. So you can go and do an encrypted Google Forms like app where no one who's actually filling out the form, even though there are transactions taking place on layer one, on the actual Cadena blockchain, the people who are doing the transactions aren't paying the gas. The person who built the smart contract has given the smart contract coins that it uses to pay for gas. And those coins can only be used for gas for that contract. It's a total sea change, I mean, from a UX point of view, for how we think about dApps, because no longer are you going to have to convince people, hey, to go and use CryptoKitties, you're going to need to go make a wallet first. No, instead, you can just have the app, and it can make you a very lightweight wallet just inside of CryptoKitties, and the app itself, like the dApp itself on-chain, can pay the gas. And that's a big one. Um, Stu, do you have one that you want to dig into? I mean, it's just funny because I can't actually stop talking about gas stations. Um, we've been hearing for three years now how this is the number one UX issue that prevents mom and pop or grandma from getting on a crypto thing, adapt, because it's hard enough to do crypto. And now you need to think about the ETH token as well as the token of the wallet and or of the app. And, you know, and you got to like fiddle with a wallet and you have to do all this stuff, whereas you know, you get to the point where gas is taken care of and then people just open up a mobile app, hit a button and they're just going. It's, it's just a completely different experience. And it's one of the things that it relates to one of the things about Pact, which is that Pact from the ground up was multi-sig. And that seems like no big deal. Um, but I, I, one of the things that I designed into the language is that I said, if you're, if you're ever going to use a key, I'm not even going to let you prevent somebody from using a key set. So you can't force a key to be single sig. You, it, ha it, it has to be at least one sig, but it can be two, it can be three, it can be best, you know, it can be two out of five, it can be any of these things. And then just use it everywhere so that contract governance, you want to control, who, you, well, one, we can upgrade smart contracts in Kadena, which is something you can't do in Ethereum, and that's controlled by a key set. Second, uh, you know, anything that has to do with ownership and permissions in the DAP, why does that just have to be one key set? You might want to say three people, any one of these three people are empowered to do this particular thing. And then when you get, but that's multi-sig when you think about like three people owning one thing. The other thing about multi-sig is making it easy to have signatures on a transaction be responsible for different things. So you have one signature that's responsible for gas and you have one signature that's responsible for the money that you might be transacting or something like that. That is such a fundamental change to how Bitcoin and Ethereum works that makes so many things possible. But I, I do come back to gas stations a lot because the fundamental act of being able to, if you send a transaction into Ethereum, the most important signature on that, the, the one that's built into the protocol is the sender and the person paying for gas. And so the idea that now you can make that something that's actually an autonomous uh, paying vehicle or something like that, uh, I think is a really beautiful illustration of it. But another thing is safer custody. I mean, we're going to get to a place where you don't even have to like back up your keys anymore because you're going to have a key on your secure enclave on your Mac. You're going to have a key in your secure enclave on your iPhone. You're going to have, you know, they're, they're just going to be kind of naturally spread out, but also tremendously secure. So things like, you know, carrying around a ledger, right? you know, you could have one key on a YubiKey or something like that too. And that way, you, you know, you're, you're secure and you can't lose your keys. And you, you just get out of this nightmare that people are in right now where it's so easy to lose crypto. That is a nightmare. And you highlighted it so well. I love these use cases. Um, it's just absolutely amazing. Uh, okay. I, I want to talk more about that for the next three hours, but we have to move on to the next topic, unfortunately. But this is the number one problem in business. And there's a lot of people out there that are running their own business. They can relate. It's finding good people to hire. How do you guys find good people? And what is your criteria for grading job candidates? That is such a critical question and um, great one. We, uh, we have a, the, the end of the story is that there is a book called Who, um, you know, the A Method for Hiring. And it is a playbook 
for how you do um, sourcing and interviewing and uh, converting someone over after you've made an offer and they've accepted. Um, we live by that playbook. It got recommended to me by the people. Um, the backstory of how we found it was we were talking with the people at A Capital. What's because, the name of it um, again, real quick? Uh, it's who at colon the A method for hiring, I believe. Um, yeah, and uh, it is um, it's just fantastic. We uh, it has this thing called the top grading interview in it, and it basically takes your resume and turns it into a one to three hour um, narrative of your professional life. And we use it for everyone, um, regardless of if they're coming in as an intern or if they're coming in as an executive. Um, and it is fantastic. It's helped us most importantly to avoid bad hires or people that weren't good fits, even though we were very excited about them. It's also given us a very good idea what someone's capabilities and also growth areas are. Uh, people who've gone through it with us have um, uniformly said, both people who we've hired and not, that it was a really informative uh, journey that they went on with the interviewers that there's always two people from our side that go in for uh, the top grading interview. And it is, um, it's just, it, it's just this incredible sea change of how our hiring got so much better once we started going by this book. It's, it's the way that I've described to other people is most things don't have a algorithmic solution. Um, most things there is nuance and subtlety and subjectivity. It turns out that 90% of hiring, or maybe even 100% of hiring, emits itself to an algorithmic solution. The algorithm is um, who the A method for hiring. You just follow it, and it works incredibly, incredibly well. Uh, we found it because we were talking with the A Capital people, and um, they, uh, some of the people there were in HR um, at Google, and I think also at Spotify. And when they were building out the global um, culture and the global HR department, and I ask, you know, when I run into people who are global experts in a domain, I usually ask them, hey, do you have a manual for like what you're an expert in? Is there like this thing that is book that is a must read? And I sometimes get weird answers like, oh, I'm actually an expert in like doing um, a Zen garden. And there's this amazing book about it. Um, but on this case, I was talking to the people at A Capital and they gave me um, who the A method for hiring and said, like, this is the playbook for how we did large scale hiring. Um, you should use this. And we did, and we haven't looked back since. It's amazing. It gets you the Brilliant. team that you want to win with. Yep. Wow. I love Can't it. Can't recommend that, it high enough. Well, I, I just wrote that one down, whothebook.com. Uh, definitely going to be checking that out for, for our next series of hires here. Um, one, of the, one of the interesting things that I always find by doing these founder series episodes is kind of looking at like management style. So Will, what would you say Stuart's management style is? And then and Stuart, how would you classify Will's management style? That's a hard question. <laughs> it's um, probably, it's out of left field, but uh, I think it always lends to uh, the discussion. It gives a little bit more color. I don't know. I mean, I, I'd say that we both fall into the pretty flexible category. Um, you know, us both being from a tech background makes our management styles not that different. Um, we're just, we try to be reasonable and understanding and really it starts with hiring. If you hire um, the right group of people, there's not a whole lot of management that needs to get done. Um, the main thing is making sure that the narrative and the discussion comes together in a way that you get the best out of what everyone has to offer. Um, but you know, we, in the end of the day, we're both engineers. We tend to be data driven. Um, we like algorithmic approaches. Um, Stuart definitely has way more experience than I do. And so I learn a lot from him. I went into this never having had any more than one or two direct reports. Um, Stuart luckily had experience of running a 20 person team, 15 person team at JP Morgan uh, before we met. And then the 10 person team that we were on at JP Morgan. So um, in that respect, he had you know 10 years of experience and two or three different jobs on me when it came to management. So I'll, for a lot of that, I look to him for um, just learning. And because of that, it's hard for me to really say like what his style is versus someone else. I've only ever had really good bosses. So Stuart was one of them. And the ones that are two that I had before were quite good. So I was reasonable and data-driven, I guess. Yeah, I think one thing, I, I, th I think Will's right that, uh, well, one being uh, tech kind of changes your view of management and you have a tendency to be a, a bit less, um, it, it's, a, you know, the interaction with your directs is, is a bit more direct to be, you know, just because you're talking about engineering and things like that. And while I've led a lot of teams, like Will said, I've led teams since 2000 in building technology systems. 
Um, it's also that uh, they've always they always have been tech teams, and um, and then I've had some very good bosses too. I've had some terrible ones, but I've had some I've had some really good bosses. And I think one of the main things that Will and I share is is that one of the main things that makes for good leadership is accountability. And that is, you know, if you say you're going to fix something, it actually has to be fixed. If you say that, you know, if you say you're going to work on something, it really needs to be worked on. And people need to have visibility into their needs being addressed and, you know, and kind of feedback that they're being heard. Um, I think one thing that was interesting for me working with Will, who, you know, is, is uh, almost 20 years my junior age-wise, uh, Will was Will, however, is much closer in age to most of the people we've hired. So that's actually been a, a benefit because there are new thoughts about how workplaces operate when you're talking about like millennials and that generation. They have different expectations. They have I'm more old school where you know you'd show up to a job and if your boss was nice to you, that's a that's a perk, but you would never expect it. Um, and I don't mean mean, but just you know, but like, you know, actually a lot of the concepts around culture that I think really helped us uh, survive the transition to remote that we recently did um, came out of the, the, this kind of the younger generation's kind of concern about these things. So I think that's one way we've benefited is that while, yes, I have, you know, a, a great deal of experience with certain aspects of management, I've certainly never led a startup before and startups are kind of young they have a young feel anyway, but we also hired a number of people, uh, you know, in their early thirties and some in their late twenties and even some people out of school. So, um, I think that's, I think that's a really fascinating thing. I think it's actually really important that startups, if they can do hire older people, um, you know, whenever they can, and especially in engineering, um, the second oldest person after me is our, is our lead engineer on chain web. And, uh, you know, and you just get tremendous benefit. Startups are hard. And so you need every perspective you can get. Um, but then it's important to realize that, like, you know, businesses shit on young people a lot and they don't take their ideas seriously. And, they, and you know, so you want to like that. I think that's something that Will and I capture just due to the, you know, due to who we are. And it's something I've, it's been really exciting for me personally. Wow. That is brilliantly insightful. Um I want to unpack one other thing that I thought of while I was listening to you, Stuart. You made the transition to remote, probably because of uh, the coronavirus and stuff. Tell me how that transition was and how do you feel about it now that um, you know it's kind of solidified? Do you think it's here to stay or would you really want to go back to working in an, in an office? What are some of the pros and cons? Well, you know, it's funny you'd ask me because I was – Probably, I, I was probably the most nervous person about it, or at least one of the most nervous person people about going remote. But interestingly enough, uh, we were planning on going remote anyway. Um, you know, we did a kind of typical startup thing where we really burned hot to get to launch. And, you know, we got to launch, we nailed it, we made all our targets on time, launched our network on January 15th. But then at that point, we were, say, we were like, okay, the network's live. Now we got to switch into sustainability mode. And one of those things was, we were going to go as remote as we could. We weren't going to go 100% remote, but we, we, the plan was to go down to you know only like four to six desks, and then everybody else would have hotel desks. And we enacted that plan March 1st of this year, and then come out looking like geniuses, like we you know predicted COVID and all this stuff. But in fact, <laughs> it was just lucky timing. We were we were determined to go mainly remote as mainly as a cost savings measure. And also just to be ready for anything, you know, in the sense that if we, if our blockchain blew up globally, then we could, you know, it wouldn't be like this big weird culture thing to have people working in other countries. If, you know, if we, you know, if our runway situation doesn't work out after a year, we can, you know, we can keep getting that burn down and be able to survive longer and longer. Um, so, so I wouldn't say it was luck. I would really say it was preparedness. Absolutely. No, I mean, we, it was definitely a prepared thing. <laughs> it was just that we weren't doing it for a pandemic. So when the pandemic showed up, uh, it just, you guys meant were that well hedged. We were well, yeah, we were well hedged. And what's more, it actually made cutting off that last bit of 
that last bit of non-remote really easy. We just ended that lease right away and went to 100% remote. And I'll be honest, I think for our team and the size of our team, remote, because remote has forced us to look at not take culture for granted in terms of like water cooler culture for granted. You know, it's really forced us to think about how we want to like uh, structure meetings and how we want to make sure that everybody's visible. We never had whole company all hands. Now we do once a week. Uh, and everybody really enjoys them. They're not like, you know, and I, I shouldn't say all hands. I mean, they're, uh, they're really standups, you know, like a, every, everybody in the company says what they're working on, not just developers. Uh. And, uh, and, and, you know, pe some people are like skeptical about that, but now that's become, I think one of everybody's favorite things about working at Cadena is that once a week they get to hang out with a whole bunch of people and talk about working for the company that they love. So, um, it's invaluable. Well, and it's really nice, obviously when you're quarantined, you know, and these kinds of things. So like, I think the fact that we were able to transition into remote comfortably has turned this thing into a, a big source of strength for everybody as they, as we navigate this horrible time. Yeah. Makes a ton of awesome sense guys. This was a really, really insightful conversation. Um, we've got just one last question uh, for each of you. And, and the question is something that we pose to every single person that comes on the podcast. And it's as simple as this. If this was the first podcast that somebody was listening to about cryptocurrency or blockchain, what would you want them to know and why? Look for what's real, not the hype. There's a lot of hype um, in the industry. Uh, there is real stuff going on in the industry too. Generally speaking, the stuff that's real can't be anywhere near as loud as the stuff that's fake. Um, and because we're talking about <clears throat> digital money and it's in a regulatory gray zone, um, it means that there's a lot of fly-by-night, a lot of kind of sketchy operations that take place. Um, and like those are the things, you know, if, if you had to know one thing, it's that like do your own research, like don't follow the shows. Like really think about this stuff and think about it in a broader way than just like, oh, it's going to make 5x in the next, you know, two months. Because if you follow that trend, you know, you might make it, but you probably are going to lose a fair bit. It's still emerging tech, but it's got a huge amount of potential. And Stu and I wouldn't have left, you know, the SEC and JP Morgan if we didn't think that um, the 2020s were going to be a massive sea change for what it is when it comes to money. Wow. Well said. Stu, any, any last thoughts there? I mean, my thought is just that one thing Cadena has always been is what I'll call a blockchain maximalist company. And what I mean by that is that blockchain means something despite what the, the incredible you know, variety of what people have kind of abused the term to mean. And this is, it's really obvious on the enterprise side, but it's even, it's even pretty... There's even things on the public crypto side where these things get lost. And, you know, and what blockchain is, is a decentralized system that allows you to not have to trust a central party. And, you know, we all take that for granted when we're talking about blockchain. But the fact is, is that most proof of stake systems are centralized, if not all. I'm not going to say all, most. If they don't engineer and not just engineer, but control their investor class very carefully, they become centralized just immediately. Um, most scaling solutions like Lightning Network becomes be, start looking like uh, interbank loans. Um, everything starts revolving around large liquidity centers. And I think one of the reasons why we like proof of work is that proof of work, you know, it's not it's not perfect with respect to decentralization, but it does at least have the ability, and nobody is stopping it from being decentralized. And then likewise, even on the private blockchain side, you know, a lot of our competitors have gone away from our architectures that are really as resilient as the blockchains because blockchains also have this other feature. They can't be stopped. They're incredibly resilient. So if you have a decentralized system that is incredibly resilient, we should be able to move all sorts of things onto those platforms, you know, things like that today are centralized and really shouldn't be, um, whether that's like, you know, donation platforms, you know, uh, you name it. Like it's it's something where decentralization still has a lot to offer our society, and we're still really huge believers in it. And it's just it's something that I don't talk about that often because it, you know, 
people would be like, what? Well, yeah, of course, blockchain. But no, actually, a lot of things in blockchain, in some ways, are really moving away from that vision. And so that's what I, those are the projects I follow. Like Cosmos, to me, is an example of a proof-of-stake blockchain that really worked hard to not be centralized. And so, you know, I really respect what those guys did. Um, and that's what I think about anyway. Awesome. Well, those are some amazing nuggets, you know, big, chunky, golden nuggets of wisdom uh, that you guys just imparted upon any person who's just perhaps tuning in for the first time. But guys, without further ado, we're going to sign off today. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Stuart, for for talking to us about your your career path from JP Morgan to being some titans of the crypto industry. And, you know, if people want to find out more about Kadena, where should we send them to? Are you guys pretty active on Twitter, Telegram, uh, a, a good website? Uh, well, our website is Kadena.io. Um, and of course, we have our uh, Discord group. Um, and you can get to all these things from our website. We have a newsletter. We're, we are on Telegram, although we really like people to be on Discord. Uh, Twitter, we have a bunch of Medium posts. Uh, on Medium, you can sign up for our newsletter. So, Brilliant. All that. Sounds good. Thank you, gentlemen. And we'll hopefully talk to you guys soon. Likewise. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.